Hi, I'm Jody Melman, and this is Backstage with the Bardavan. Our podcast will draw back the curtain and bring you backstage at the Bardavan 1869 Opera House that is located in Poughkeepsie, New York. For more than 150 years, notables such as Mark Twain, Frank Sinatra, James Earl Jones, Mary Tyler Moore, Santana, Aretha Franklin, and John Legend have graced its stage. Today, we have three very special guests who will actually be taking us backstage at the Bardavon and UPAC. Joining us are Stephen LaMarca, Managing Director of Theater Productions, Tom Rosato, Technical Director and Audio, and Nicole Raskoff, Technical Director and Lighting Director. They are the technical team who make sure the lights go on and the curtain rises for each performance at the Bardavon and UPAC, and that you have a great time. Also, we'll hear how the Bardavon is reinventing itself during the pandemic. Stephen, Tom, and Nicole, welcome to Backstage with the Bardavon. Well, good morning. Um, we have quite a crew here from the Bardavon and UPAC. Um, we have with us today, joining us, we have Nicole Raskoff, Tom Rosado, and Stephen LaMarca, who are the magicians who actually take us backstage at the Bardavon and UPAC. Now, you know, during COVID, they haven't been doing any shows. They've been doing some unique things, which we're going to be talking about in the future. But right now, let's pretend that the Bardavon is open for business. Somebody wants to take, we want to find out what is the magic that goes on backstage. Okay, so who starts first? Is it the lights, the sound, or the production? Uh, it starts at uh, probably 5 a.m. Okay, me Tom, we're talking. Miriam opening the door and trying to wake myself up with massive amounts of coffee. And Tom, what is your job there at the Bardavon? Uh, I'm the technical director here um, at the Bardavon in Poughkeepsie. Um, so my job is to advance the shows, uh, coordinate the crew, um, and coordinate the provision of rental equipment if need be, um, and the and the provision of house equipment. Um, and my job extends from you know all that stuff on the back end to actually running the calls on the on the day of. Um, so I'm sort of the person backstage who uh, is tasked with holding it all together on the production side. So let's say Santana shows up as he did in, uh, not, not right now, <laughs> as he did, it was 2016. Was that when he was there? That, funny you mentioned that because that was my first call uh, that I ran. Um, I wasn't yet technical director, but our technical director at the time um, had a, a horrible fever and was basically unable to uh, run the call. So I had to step up sort of last minute and take over. So tell us a little bit about that experience. That must have been uh, quite a rush. Oh, it, well, it was pretty surreal. Um, the The thing about that show was that it was a stadium show. So that, that was meant to be hung in a Madison Square Garden environment. Um, and as you probably know, we are not the size of Madison Square Garden. Um, it was, Stephen, do you remember, was it five trucks? I think it was five. It was five, it was five trucks, and they actually did play Madison Square Garden a couple of days after us. Yeah, so really right. I thought it was six trucks. To, to squeeze them in. I, th I think, yeah, it was five. It might have been six. I think it was the five was the main production element of it. I do, show. actually, now that you mention it, yeah, it was six, but one of the trucks was right. called Steel, and they didn't need that truck to show up because we, you know, we had ample steel, and we honestly couldn't fit the whole show. 
So they didn't need to bring all of their equipment. Um, a bunch of the trucks were half full in the lot because we just simply couldn't fit it in here. <laughs> well, the whole I recall the whole backstage or the whole stage was were video monitors. Yeah. yeah uh, so we have um, not large wings here. Uh, over the years, they've been expanded, but um, you know our our wing space is very limited. Uh, and so they're accustomed to having basically, you know, whole rooms that they can allot to their production with respect to video. Because sound and lighting was honestly a, a large part of that uh, that show. But the bulk of the mass of the equipment was in their uh, full upstage wall LED video wall. Um, so they had massive amounts of camera gear and switching equipment and people to operate it. So they were literally spilling off stage into the stage office. <laughs> and I think the guy who was operating the switcher was like half his equipment was out of the stage office and he was like perched in the stage office. It was wild. Yeah, when, when they first came in and saw the size of the space, some of them were just like they couldn't even believe they were actually playing this tiny little place. And, you know, some of them said they haven't played in places that small in decades. Uh, you know, a lot of them had been with Santana for a long time. But by, you know, midpoint during the day to by the time they left, they were totally converted and loved the Bardavan. And as you know, you were at probably at the show, Jody, mm -hmm. you know, Carlos did some real, you know, soulful things calling out some of the past artists that had been there and it was just it was really a special night and for me it was one of the highlights of shows that i booked there over the years it was it, it was awesome and, and i remember the lighting director or the uh the lighting designer came on stage and i introduced myself and i said so when was the last time you guys played a venue this small and he was like i think i was singing in my high school choir <laughs> <laughs> That was a really special show. And then yeah, his yeah. wife was uh, the drummer at the time, I remember. So, I mean, it was yeah, just, amazing. it was like a family affair for him. Yeah, she's amazing, too. She did it. Incredible. During the show. Yeah. Now, Stephen, you were in charge of booking that event, correct? I was. And, uh, Tell us a little yeah, bit about that. First of all, what is your position at the Bardavan? Uh, I'm the managing director of production. I've worked there on and off in various capacities since 1983, which is when I started as a stagehand backstage at the Bardavan. Um, but that particular show, it was there's an interesting backstory because um, I was supposed to be going on a trip to Cuba with Chris Silva, actually, who, who went, uh, we were supposed to be going on this music tour in Cuba. And I had a family health crisis that had come up that made it kind of difficult for me to go. So I had, you know, stepped back from the trip. And while he was away, I got the call that Santana actually was going to confirm our offer, which was a whole story. Just getting to the point of getting that offer in and getting them to, you know, really acknowledge they would consider playing this tiny little space was, you know, it was a big deal and it was a process. But then when I got the call, uh, you know, I immediately reached out to Chris. I was like, you're not going to believe this. I actually booked Santana. <laughs> Nothing. Radio silence. Didn't hear anything. It's like, I'm, so I'm emailing him. I'm texting him. Like, yeah, after a couple of days, I was like, if you're alive and can still hear me, I booked Santana. <laughs> he had no service for like a week. So had I been on the tour with him, we might have missed our window. It's, right. You never know. It's one of those weird little things. But uh yeah, that was uh, that whole experience was, you know, amazingly positive and somebody that was a fantasy for me to be able to bring someone like that to the Bardavan for years. So does that happen a lot where you're trying to book people and then you don't find out and then all of a sudden they're available? How does how does the scheduling it, work? 
It's crazy. I mean, some sometimes it's very smooth. Some some acts you book right away. Others, you know, there are people we have had over the years. Like you know, we booked. I booked Lou Reed, which was somebody that I had worked on for years, and just you know, continually putting in offers, continually talking. Sometimes having dates on hold. Then we got a date with Lou Reed at the Bardavan. Totally excited. The week of the show, he he takes ill and actually has to cancel the show very last minute and promised they were going to reschedule the show. But we were like, you know, so deflated because it mm. had took, you know, a long time to get the date. And then a couple of months later, they did rebook it. The only date they had available, we weren't available at the bar. Once so oh. we did it at Epec instead. Yeah. Right. And it was a great show. And it just, you know, but there, there's so many different layers of, of how you deal with people. A lot of shows we pursue. Um, I, I reach out. I I really cultivate others are presented right to us. Sometimes they just fall right in our laps. You know, we were really lucky. Um, a couple of years back, we got a call from vampire weekend who mm -hmm. was doing an album release and wanted to do three shows in, in upstate New York. And they had, you know, we had, I had worked with their agent on different things for, you know, trying to get other acts together. And he just, you know, we stuck out enough that he contacted us back to do that, which was, you know, it was one of those shows that went on sale and sold out immediately. You know, that was a great show. Yeah, it was. What about the the uh, David Byrne Utopia show? I mean, that was really something too. That I was, mean, we went from from another, the Bardavon to Broadway, literally. Yeah, that was another great example of you know having worked with David for years. Um, you know, personally, and with the Bardavon, we he performed at the Bardavon uh, for the Rayo Momo tour. I had booked him before I was full-time at the Bardavon here at UPAC to do a, a tour in 94. Uh, and then, you know, just, I had a relationship with David's people, but we also had a working relationship with the agent. So when they, they were looking to really do some test markets on that and that first run that he played here on, on the uh, Utopia tour, the American Utopia was one of six dates. Mm. So, you know, it's it's kind of when those things happen it's always kind of special and you feel like ah oh, yeah this is why we keep doing this and you know you get those little acknowledgements which are you know really cool and you know we're really fortunate some of the acts we've been able to get in here over the years it's, you know it's kind of amazing well i one know that, that go ahead nicole what were you going to say one of the amazing things about the david byrne show is sometimes you work really really hard um, now I'm not saying it's not the case for Santana. That was a great show too. But I remember specifically for David Byrne was like, there was massive amounts of equipment. The call was so early in the morning and we spent the entire day making the stage look empty. <laughs> um, and you know, sometimes you do shows and I can't think of any in particular, but sometimes you do shows where you work so hard and you're like, and then the show happens and you're, and you kind of get this feeling of, uh, that was exhausting, and I don't know if it was necessarily <laughs> worth it. But for the, oh, for the American Utopia, we all literally worked our butts off all day. There were no breaks. The entire crew was called in something like 7 or 8 o'clock in the morning. It was so many trucks, so many – I mean, I think there was like 20-something people on that crew. And we had virtually no breaks. Like a lot of time there's downtime between like – one or two o'clock in the afternoon until the show mm -hmm. where there's like little tweaks here and there and things, but otherwise it's the touring crew doing stuff. But on David Byrne, we all worked right up until the doors opened. And that show particularly was, you know, the audience really responded and loved it, but I don't think some people realized just how groundbreaking it was that he had an entire rock band, basically wireless, just walking around right. without all the gear that you usually see. 
as as Nicole said, behind the chain perimeter that yeah. was the set was wall to wall gear. It yeah. was also there; it just wasn't visible. So that was really an amazing. But it, and technical it was feat. one of those shows where just watching it. I mean, it was just amazing. It, it was, was like, choreographed. I mean, it was an actual yeah. rock show that was choreographed, and he had um, those the chain link, not chain link, but chain beads. You it know, was it like was a the mat. screening. It was un yeah, and the mats on the floor. I mean, it was absolutely incredible. And I remember him coming, uh, talking to the audience, saying, "Look, you know, we're testing this out. Please don't take any pictures. You know, we we're we're experimenting, and we hope you go along on the ride with us." And everybody did. It was unbelievable. But a lot of that was due to the work that you guys had put had done behind yeah. the scenes. Totally, it was it was really an amazing technical feat that that whole performance and the subsequent you know Broadway run was just amazing. But our our show was also special. On the first run, Simi Stone, who was local, was in his band on that. And when she came out the first time, the crowd went nuts because they just <laughs> yeah. you know it was yeah. so everyone was so excited to see their local girl out on tour. With <laughs> that her, was know, very which cool. Which is another sweet moment from that. Nicole, did you want to introduce yourself? I feel like Stephen and I. Yes, Nicole. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, my name's Nicole Raskoff. I'm the technical director at UPAC. Um, although, unfortunately, I only got to do about four or five shows before we closed down <laughs> as technical director. Um, but I'm also the lighting director of both venues. I started at UPAC before they were part of the Bardavon family in, um, I think, 1996, because I went to SUNY New Paltz. And um, so I worked at UPAC all through college. And then um, when I graduated college, I left, I worked off Broadway and then um, I had a family, all that. I came back to see a show at UPAC and ran into the former technical director and came back in. And my first show at the Bardavon proper was a kid's show. So, <laughs> Those um, are fun too. I, yeah. And then I slowly worked my way up and now I'm the lighting director and the technical director at UPAC. So what has been the biggest, what show has been the biggest challenge? I mean, we've talked about the Utopia show in Santana. Are there any others that spring to mind that really were nail biting to the last minute? Uh, Tom Jones. Tom in Jones. In terms of the rigging was, I mean, it just looked so incredible from the audience. And the reason it looked so incredible um, is they hung these trusses, four trusses that ran, usually the, the lighting trusses run stage left to stage right. So, you know, parallel to the proscenium line. Uh, their lighting rig ran upstage to downstage. And not only did it run upstage to downstage, but the trusses were splayed. So in other words, on the upstage side, on the, the, the side of the stage that's away from the audience, mm -hmm. the, the trusses, four trusses were close together. Oh, and okay. Downstage, they fanned out and they extended past the proscenium line up over the audience. Right. At an angle. I remember that. So yes. It had this just incredible. It looked like a spaceship when you when you came in, but the uh, the rigging for that was incredibly difficult because up in in the air, fifty six feet up above the stage, we have this uh, grid of steel that you can rig chain motors to. Um, to support the immense weight of all of these trusses. Um, and it's much easier to rig uh, in a grid, you know, mm -hmm. like a piece of graph paper. Right. It is not easy at all to put these points, to hang these trusses in really weird random places. Um, so I think it took, we started at six in the morning and we didn't get the lighting rig fully hung. Not 
mind you, not plugged in, not fired up, not focused, but we didn't get it hung until like two in the afternoon. It was just, you know, this massive rigging monstrosity. Um, so for me, that was the biggest nail biter in, in the last three years because I was like, around noon, I was like, oh my God, I hope we can catch this. <laughs> Now, I have to say, it wasn't that much of a nail-biter for me because he was rehearsing with us, so there was not even a show the first day. So. Oh, that's right. Oh, <laughs> No nail-biting there. Yeah, but I was worried we wouldn't get it in by the second day. True. Uh, uh, one, of, one of my nail-biters was when John Legend did our gala, um, I think it was 2013 or 14, mm -hmm. and uh, the time, a couple nail-biters with that. A few weeks out from the date, we get a call from them that he's... Um, been invited to be in one of the big um, award shows. Which yeah, it was, I think it was the Billboard Awards. Billboard. He was nominated, yes. Exactly. And so they had to cancel our date, which, you know, was, of course, at that right. point, you know, nail-biting. And, you know, we I managed to get a rescheduled date, actually got a little reduction in fee because they they felt like they had inconvenienced us, which was fine. <laughs> and then what happened with the new date ended up being the week that his song all of me went to number one on the charts so right. it was like the timing of it was you know uncanny for us but the night of the show he doesn't show up until about an hour after the show was supposed to start <laughs> and like where i'm on the phone with them and they're giving me updates hey they're at the tappanzee bridge it's like the tappanzee bridge <laughs> <laughs> so he wasn't here for a sound check he didn't do any of that so that was a major nail biter but the audience was really chill and really you know, didn't seem really that put out by it, which yeah. was really good. Cause it, it almost added to the better. excitement, you know. It, it kind of did, yeah. It was well, he just walked in and walked on stage, basically. More or less, yeah. He kind of pulled up and, you know, he's, he did a quick uh, wardrobe change because he was a little more casual when he walked <laughs> in than when he went out there. But And that was cool. He had people up on stage with him on couches and stuff. So it was a, that was a real special It was a great life. show. It was a really yeah, great but, show. Yeah. So are there, I know that in the past, the Bardavan's also been used as a, um, a practice venue for yes. bands. Uh, yeah. Can you tell us some stories about those? Uh, we have a, a lot of people who have used the space over the years. Um, you know, Natalie Merchant was one that has, has been a regular with us. Um, as you probably know, if you've talked to Chris ever, one, yeah. of, <laughs> one of the big ones is Bob Dylan, who has right. used our space multiple times, both, both places. And those have always been really kind of special because there is a, you know, there's an inherent, they don't want anybody knowing what, what he's doing and they don't want cameras and they don't want, you know, they make sure all the, the, in-house video is disconnected before he gets there so nobody's pirating anything and you know they're really uptight about that stuff but um you know those have been kind of special moments just being able to be a fly on the wall and watching you know dylan create new material has been you know stuff like that is you know you can't really get that experience for, for me those are just some of the real special behind the scenes moments that were yeah, and we had moment shots tech their show here for a month yeah. before they took it which was really really special they started just from like nothing and we were here every day and and they're just amazing people amazing artists that they was our first people. podcast was with right. floriana yeah. yeah yeah that was our yeah. first podcast i mean and it's She's a very amazing. cool company you know they're I mean? so sweet yeah and we've worked with them for over the years you know i don't know even know how many times i mean i remember back in the probably mid 80s the first time i worked with them and yeah, they're just, they're so creative and so much fun and, you know, so simple, but 
they bring things to a whole, you know, a whole other point of view that people just don't usually consider when they're looking at things, you know. They're it's totally a universal appeal, too. You know, I mean, you don't have to speak English. You can speak any language in the world, and they communicate, you know, their humor. And it's just, it's, it's wonderful. It really is it, wonderful. Uh, I speak not by any means fluent, but I speak Italian and English. And they, they all are obviously are fluent in the four languages of Switzerland. And they would forget that uh, I only spoke two of the four. So often, <laughs> Lo would be like talking about something, transitioning from like English to Romance to Italian to back to English and then to German. And I'd be like, Flo. <laughs> <laughs> Nicole, uh, what's what's I, been I your big, what, what's been your biggest challenge, oh, Nicole? Go. No. <laughs> <laughs> every every show <laughs> no i mean which show has been the biggest challenge yeah um probably most recently i would say when we did once mm-hmm. um i wasn't actually the technical director then but um i was somewhat acting as technical director because the technical director was av- unavailable for most of the load-in um, and it was it was a big production. I think there were uh, 27 people on the crew. And unfortunately, some of them didn't show up. So then in the middle of the day, we had to change from what they called like they had an A show, a B show and a C show, which depends on the size of the crew and how much work can get done. And in that show, we were laying an entire floor on top of the stage floor mm-hmm. at UPAC, plus all of the lighting and huge set pieces because it was a musical. It wasn't just a a band. So it was loading in the band on top of loading in an entire set. Um, And so because some of the crew didn't show up halfway through the day, we had to switch from an A show to a B show. And then in the middle of that, we also had like the person that was hired for the dresser um, couldn't actually handle being a dresser. It was too stressful for her. So she quit in the middle of the day. find a new person so I had to I ended up and I didn't really hire the crew so I so I didn't have control over that but I was kind of dealing you know but that was my role was to deal with a day of and um so then I had to move the follow spot operator who actually majored in costume design to costume for the show and then find another follow spot operator to fill in for her all while trying to be the main um the lighting director and which if I had been technical director, I probably would have hired somebody else to be lighting director, but we didn't. So I was trying to <laughs> lighting designer as well as all of the crew and the tour. And so it, that was another one where we were working. We actually had to hold the house 30 minutes to get everything done in time. So, well, you know, I'm sorry, go ahead. It's the attributes that you guys have in your jobs, the stress levels that you have, that you have to go through. What can, what can you say, like, is your best attribute you bring to the job? If I could ask each one of you guys. The, the ability the to, to continue standing after three days of no sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I would say just being able to go with the flow and really rely on the people you work with. Like, you yeah. mentioned Santana. That was Tom's first show, but that was also... Uh, not for a show, but for a show as technical director in a sense. And that was the first time that I assisted him because um, for a while I was ATD before I was technical director. And that was the first show that I assisted him. And fortunately, we discovered that we worked really well together. 
where he could handle the the touring company and I handled the local crew. And like, we didn't even have to talk about things. It kind of just, we just flowed right into it so much so that when we did Bob Dylan right down at the, uh, the water, we had the same relationship and that was a Mm -hmm. massive undertaking and um, being able to work so well together and know that you can rely on your crew and especially the other people who are in charge with you and have, more important roles is great. You know, it's really helpful that like Tom can say to me, okay, here's the lighting designer, go work with him and doesn't ask another question the rest of the day, unless I come to him and say, Hey, I need something. Yeah. You know? Or when we I'm both, technical director. We both tolerate Steven really well. <laughs> <laughs> so with the Bardavon being closed, I know it's been a challenge for each and every one of you, but it seems as if you've taken the Bardavon to the next step. And by that, I mean you've taken some absolutely incredible um, classic albums and reached out to wonderful musicians and had them make their contributions to those albums. So first of all, I want to know whose brainchild it was to do The Velvet Underground, The Grateful Dead, Carole King, and, you know, all of these wonderful Van Morrison. Whose idea was that and how do you put that together? Because I'm telling you, they are like... They're, they're wonderful rock, um, uh, the documentaries. I mean, I've never seen anything like it. It's unbelievable. Well, that, those are, that was my, my little pet project. And thank you. I, re- I really appreciate that. Uh, when we first went dark, uh, we, we, you know, we were thinking we were going to be closed for just a very short period of time initially, like everyone. And as it became obvious, that was not the case. I wanted, you know, I was talking to Chris and I wanted to do something to get us online and just have a presence, but I didn't want to just say, let's do a Bob Dylan tribute or let, you know, it it just seemed like, you know, we needed something. And, you know, I, I was just trying to come up with a way to to do something that would stand out and just kind of pop into my head about um, doing uh, Highway 61 Revisited had an upcoming anniversary, a 50th anniversary coming up and like a couple months ahead of where we where we were at that time. I was like, wow, that would be really cool. What if we just kind of tried to recreate this album with different people and, you know, see, see if we could put together a whole rebroadcast of that. And Chris liked the idea. I drafted something, started, I reached out to a couple of people and right away got John, um, John Medeski and Jack DeJunette, uh signed up right away, as well as Kate Pearson, uh, just committed right off the bat to, to being part of it. It's like, oh, that's great. So that's a really good start. Uh, Happy Trom, same thing. Some of our local, you know, the amazing pool of local talent that we have around mm-hmm. here is kind of incredible. And then I just started, you know, using that and reaching out to cast a wider net and Lucinda Williams jumped on right away. And I was just, it, it kind of fell together uh, in, in its own way. And I was suggesting songs to people. Some people came back with ideas of what they'd like to do. And the, the very first one we did, Chris and I shot the whole things on our cell phones, just to prove us <laughs> there was no production whatsoever. Uh, if you look back at them, you can probably notice the difference in them. And then we started ramping it up. We have, um, uh, Tom is obviously an amazing audio guy. So when we had to have him just, you know, yay, Tom. do any mastering, of, <laughs> yay, Tom, uh, mastering of, you know, any of the audio that was, you know, a given, Nicole kind of came in and did a lighting pre- pre-hang so we could at least bring up some, you know, a look instead of Chris and I just standing there in front of a wall with our cell phones. 
Uh, and then Brian uh, Whitney, who's one of our, um, he's actually one of our box office guys. He's, his other life is he's an independent filmmaker. Mm -hmm. And being that we don't have a box office, we reached out to him and he was really excited. So he started coming in and doing filming all the intros and, you know, we stepped it up a grade. And then we started integrating, you know, more footage of, of you know, some historic things and flushing them out a little more because, you know, right from the beginning, the response was really great. And artists have just been incredible. Yeah, you know, I mean, we've we've had like 60 different artists on these broadcasts now. And as you know, if you watched the last one, I got Annie Lennox and Carly Simon to agree to be on it, which was just freaking huge. You know, that was that was just and as soon as you know, as soon as Carly was on it, you know, that probably helped lure Annie on board, yeah. which was just great. And after you know, during the whole thing, they really promoted it heavily on their own Facebook pages. And after the fact, Carol King's page picked it up and promoted it as well, which was really cool. So, you know, it's just the response has been really rewarding. It's been it's been one of the things I'm really proud to have been able to put that together during our break. You know, So you've been celebrating. It was like the 40th anniversary of Tapestry, right? And it was the 40, 50. the 50th anniversary of Tapestry. And also so it would be the 50th anniversary for Moondance. Yeah, and for the Grateful Dead's American Grateful Beauty, American and, Beauty, yeah, and Dylan's Highway 61, Van Morrison was or um, Velvet Underground. Yeah, they all. I think Van Morrison was actually 51 years. I think it was like a weird yeah. Gap, but we wanted to do it because it was you know such a great album and had a lot of local connections as well. So and people can see them. They're free. They're at the, they're at the Bardavon Presents YouTube channel. Yep, they still live there, and they're you know they're. They're up and available to, to check out. So what's next? Give us a preview. What you doing next? Well, on the albums revisited, I'm in the process of putting together um, David Bowie's Ziggy Stardust. Wow. Be really wow. Fun. I'm talking to a few anchors about that. We're going to probably do that a little different and try and have a house band here that we have some of the artists coming in and out and performing their slots here, which uh, we didn't do too much of that before. So that's going to be the the main structure of that one. So that'll be kind of fun. And then pepper some other national acts in and out of that. Um, and then we also, um, on a different front, we have our Rhapsody in Black show that yes. we, filmed, we filmed early on. That's one of the first things we filmed, that that's out on tour and it's, it's going online right now. We have a show called Step Africa that's available for, you know, we have about 10,000 kids in the Hudson Valley watching that now too. It's just starting to go out now. So that's exciting. And we just finished filming with Philippe Petit, who uh, did the higher high wire walk between the World Trade mm -hmm. Center is his most notorious act, I think, that people know him from. But he was here and we filmed a show called Open Practice that we're in the process of getting that out as well. So that's uh, pretty wonderful. exciting. Where can people wonderful. where can people find those if they're interested? Uh, the the um, they're going to all be through our Bardavon website right now, you can mm -hmm. get links to all of them. They're, they're all run slightly differently, but they're, they're all available at the website. And um, I think Philippe will probably, his, his show Open Practice will probably be on our YouTube channel as well when it premieres. But right now, if anyone goes to bardavon.org, they can connect in and really see what all the, thing, the stuff that's out there right now. And some of them require reservations, even though they're free, mm -hmm. uh, just so we can send links and codes and all that fun stuff. Yeah. Now, what's the status of the uh, of the um, gala this year? I know that you, I know that Audra was supposed to be the yeah. uh, headliner last year. Um, what's the status? It's been pushed forward to October. Is that we have, we have pushed 
pushed back date to October, and like everything else, you know, we're we're waiting. She's waiting just to see how viable it's going to be in that window. We're hoping it can, and you know, if we can't do it in the exact same window, which is partially why we haven't announced it, because she just wants to make sure all, all the things that are surrounding that on her end come together, because her schedule's a little complicated as well. Um, but then if not, you know, our intention is still to do the next gala with her. <laughs> Whenever <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, it's such a weird limbo. That, you know, that's been one of the hard things for me booking wise during this break is, you know, and not just for me, everyone we deal with, all the agents, all the all the acts, you know, they they are trying to go through the motions of putting a tour together. And then they realize that 10 of the 25 places that they were trying to route in can't really do a tour right now. And you know there are there are venues operating in different parts of the country, and then you know, the, the, those capacities fluctuate still. So, mm. yeah, it's just it's it, it was kind of an un, unimaginable scenario that the whole industry would just come to a grinding halt like this. Um, and, uh, it's been it's been interesting dealing with you know a lot of agents and management and how they're processing it, and they're all saying how you know all the independent venues are or what's kind of keeping them going. So we're going to see how that all plays out once they're all back and running. <laughs> right. <laughs> open again, but we'll, we'll see. Um, well, one thing that people can do when they listen to this podcast is they can go to bardivine.org if they want to become a member, if they want to donate, if they want to see your programs, if they want to communicate with you. So you definitely are there for people to, to be in touch with during these difficult times. And we really appreciate, you know, you meeting with 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 us today. I mean, it's been a great experience yes. for you to take us back, literally backstage at the Bardavon and UPAC. So thank yeah, you I, very I, much. Thank you, Nicole and Tom and Steve. Yeah. And Steve <laughs> has given us a tour, but <laughs> we really appreciate it. Well, thank you, guys. We really appreciate you having us on. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again to Stephen, Tom, and Nicole and the Bardavon 1869 Opera House for supporting our Backstage with the Bardavon podcast. Backstage with the Bardavon is produced by Patrick Watson and Jody Melman. Sound engineering and editing is by Ben Harris. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please review it on iTunes. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook at Backstage with the Bardavon. Thanks again for listening and see you next time Backstage with the Bardavon.